Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1660, with Charles II restored as king after Oliver Cromwell's Commonwealth, an unwanted young girl called H is growing up in a country parsonage. I could never know enough about my mother. Evelyn would hold me on her lap and stroke my hair and feed me the scraps I hungered for. How good and kind she was, and how she would have loved me had she lived. I clung to these thoughts, as my father and grown-up sisters had a particular coldness reserved only for me, which I understood arose from a sense that my arrival into the world was a very poor trade for my mother's death. But when H's father then dies, she's sent to live with her aunt in London. Life is much happier until the plague takes away the people and the city she loves. Friendless, destitute, and made pregnant by a lecherous cousin, H's extraordinary story plays out in a London under quarantine. I'm Rob Weinberg, and in this edition of Historical Fiction, I talk to author Sarah Burton about her new novel, The Strange Adventures of H. This is Historical Fiction. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rob. Tell us a bit more about The Strange Adventures of H. Well, you've given quite a good summary of the story so far. So after London comes out of quarantine and life goes back to normal, but as we know, there's never going to be a normal again, really, after these kind of situations, H finds herself friendless, homeless, pregnant and unmarried. And that is not a good situation to be in at any time, but it's particularly not a good situation to be in at that time. So she ends up having nothing to sell but herself, and she starts on a career as a prostitute. And basically the rest of her adventures spring from that decision, but it's very difficult to see what other decisions she could make under those circumstances. What inspired you to write a novel set against this backdrop of Restoration London? Well, I had done my PhD on the advent of the actress. So people probably know that, for example, in Shakespeare's time, all female parts on the stage were played by boys. When the theatres were closed as a prelude to the Civil War, and then they remained closed throughout the Commonwealth, it was a very difficult time for actors, obviously, because there were no legitimate ways they could earn money. And when Charles II was restored to the throne, one of the changes he made was to reopen the theatres and to have women playing women. So this was a really interesting period for the theatre. But it was also a very interesting period in society because women's roles had undergone huge transformations as a result of all the social turmoil there had been. 
So not only were women playing women on stage, but for the first time, stage plays were reflecting everyday life. It wasn't all about fantasy worlds or history. They were set in the now and the everyday. So in a way, the plays were playing out this new debate about women. So it was a very, very interesting time. And I just became so interested in the period. So I'd done all this research and really felt I knew what restoration smelt like. And I just thought it's just a great landscape to set a story in. And it has to be a story about a young woman. It's fascinating that your interest in Restoration London came long before the conception of the story of H. How long was the novel gestating? And is it an unusual way to go about writing a book to start with a period rather than to start with a scenario or a set of characters? I honestly don't know because I don't know how other writers approach it. I think it would be very difficult to write a novel set in a period that you were not interested in or knew nothing about. But it just seemed to me irresistible you know it's just such a rich rich period I mean my difficulty was actually trimming it down and keeping a focus because there is so much potential well you've got the whole restoration period as you say and the arrival of Nell Gwynn and Charles II and the theatre but you've also got the great plague and the fire of London so everything's in there H lives her life out against these really world-changing events or at least London-changing events. Yes, and I think, I mean, I came to this conclusion when I was doing my PhD, is the Restoration period has been sort of characterised as this licentious... I mean, you mentioned Nell Gwynn, it's interesting, that's one of the first things people will mention. You know, you had this young, glamorous king with all these mistresses and a sense that courtiers were kind of rich kids at play a lot of the time. You kind of wonder, why was that period like that? And I think part of it was to do with they'd been through these horrible wars, they'd been through the Commonwealth. But then so soon into his reign, you have these two massively traumatic events, the plague, which kills a quarter of Londoners, and then the fire, which I think wipes out five-sixths of all the buildings in London. So this is a generation that has kind of been traumatised. And I think that kind of carpe diem idea, it's kind of not surprising that people come out of all that thinking about getting sex and getting money rather than about leading respectable lives and getting married. And, you know, it must have made people feel quite insecure that the things that property, respectability, you know, all the things that people depended on could vanish in an instant. You know, I mean, the amount of devastation the fire brought, as well as the plague, must have just made people think quite differently about life, I think. There's something about H, your main character in the book, that... I mean, she's living through all of this. She's impregnated by her cousin during a rape. She's homeless. She's orphaned. And she has to take this life up as a prostitute just to survive. And yet there's something very detached. The way she engages with her own life, she has a certain kind of pragmatism and stoicism at the same time. She seems to be just observing what she's doing, but knowing that she has to do that in order just to survive. How did you sort of begin to develop her character? Do you know, I teach creative writing, and so I thought a lot about how to help people write characters. If you think of fictional characters as like real people, real people don't respond to life in terms of purely of the hand that life has dealt them, but how they respond to that. So you can have two sisters who had the same equally awful upbringing, you know, in real life, and one will be destroyed by it, and the other will somehow become this very powerful person, that they've responded in different ways to the card they've been dealt. And I think H 
is an unlikely survivor because she starts off with all these horrible disadvantages. But she does survive, and I think part of it is that she doesn't quite understand the awfulness of a lot of it. She doesn't understand what her cousin is like. She tends to blame herself for a lot of the things that happen. She always feels she has to do something about it because it's kind of her fault. <laughs> I'm glad that you, you know, feel she's sort of positive and everything. I think she is a positive little thing. But also she has these wonderful friends, which is helpful, I think. That's the great thing about fiction. You can give your character people who will help them and people that will give them trouble. <laughs> There's quite an emphasis in the book on the changing role of women during the period. I should love to be a widow, exclaimed Evelyn, so suddenly that the whole table fell silent. I mean, she qualified, of all women's states, that is the most enviable. Still, no one said anything, nor knew what to say. Their actions are less subject to opprobrium, she explained. I remember I wasn't sure what opprobrium meant, but knew I had to run to my sister's assistance. I think Evelyn means, I venture to suggest, that of all women, widows are most free. Still, no one said anything. Free is perhaps the wrong word, my dear, Aunt Madge said, frowning. It suggests inappropriate liberties. A lack of modesty. Independent, then, Evelyn hastily supplied. As a daughter, a woman must do as her father sees fit. As a wife, she must do as her husband wishes. Only as a widow is she mistress of her own destiny. There was still an uncomfortable silence. Indeed. Looked at it in that light... Roger sighed, looking extremely serious. It seems a shame that in order to be a widow, one must first be a wife. Only then did we realise he was jesting and everyone burst out laughing. To widows, he proposed, and we all drank to widows. How important was a woman's social reputation to her ability to navigate the times or even survive them? This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's two things here. 
One is that I think that the civil wars and the aftermath had a very similar effect on the role of women as the two world wars in the 20th century did, in that they had to step into male roles because a lot of the men were away fighting. If you run a pub, you have to run the pub. You can't just be the barmaid because your husband is away fighting. If you're a lady who has a vast estate, you have to run that vast estate because your husband is away fighting, which is like running a business. So women had had to step into lots of roles that they wouldn't normally have. Now, society can get away for a long time by saying women can't do things until they're in a position where they have to. And that happened with both world wars. Then the cultural narrative has to shift to women shouldn't do these things. But a whole generation has grown up seeing that women can, you know, and the sky doesn't fall in. So I think... That was another whole aspect to restoration society. It's a bit like Humpty Dumpty trying to be put together again. You can never put things back again in quite the same order, as I think we're going to find after the situation we're all living through at the moment. But the thing about reputation and respectability is that really, at that time, women were either living under the authority of a father or of a husband. You just couldn't be an independent, respectable woman unless you were a wealthy widow, which was kind of, kind of, if you want to go back in time and live in a time that you'd like, that's what you'd want to be if you were a woman, because that's the only way you've got any autonomy, really. Unless you're going to stay under your father's roof forever, in order to be marriageable, you have to be respectable. I think the other thing to remember is, if you had sex outside marriage, you were very likely to get pregnant. So you're going to get caught anyway. You're very likely to get caught. So the minute you are an unrespectable woman, you can't hide it. And there is literally nowhere for you to go. Which is why so many women who were raped or had sex outside marriage went into prostitution because there was really nothing else they could do. And I think this is another reason why actresses immediately had this label of being unrespectable women. Because on the stage, at least, they appeared to be independent women. And they didn't depend on anybody else for their status. They were professional women and very public professional women. So this whole notion of reputation is really interesting. And it's something that keeps coming up in the literature of the time. And yet the men were totally disreputable, weren't they? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. It's a narrative that is designed to keep women in check, definitely. You said you did a lot of research about this period anyway for your PhD, but did you go to visual representations of the time as well to help you describe them? Not particularly, because if you do go to visual representations of this time, you'll see we're moving between two sorts of types in that you've got these very crude woodcuts, a lot of which you've got of, I don't know if they are woodcuts, but that kind of very black and white, quite crude images of the plague pits and all the rest of it. And then there are other sorts of art that are sort of more sophisticated, but there isn't actually a great deal. So where I got most of my information was from plays. I must have read about more than 200 restoration plays. They were more like a soap opera today, in that they very much reflected the world of the audience, the world the audience lived in. So that gives you loads of colour and the texture of everyday life. And you pick up all sorts of little details. A lovely little detail I picked up was women lying about their age and being able to get away with it because in the fire so many documents had been lost including deeds of property, which also became sort of a bone of contention after the fire. So there are lovely little details that you only pick up by a you know, sort of chance reference in a play that gives you an insight into a whole little world. Yes, you certainly seem to have captured the language of the time, especially descriptions of 
people's parts. Yes, and I read lots of contemporary writing, particularly scurrilous pamphlets. You get a lot of good stuff out of scurrilous pamphlets. But I think this is something that I say to my students if you're writing historical fiction, is just really try and absorb yourself in the literature of the period. And the advantage in the Restoration, really, is the novel isn't a thing yet. And, of course, a novel gives you a kind of different version of what life is like. It's already a cleaned-up version of what life is like, whereas plays have got the immediacy of characters' voices talking like people talk. And there were lots of political and religious pamphlets about all sorts of different things that really give you some interesting vocabulary. It all has to be covered in this sort of veneer of respectability as well, doesn't it? Yes, yes. Reading your chapters on the plague somehow seemed eerily similar, having just gone through pandemic and the effects of the health crisis. You managed to imagine what we've seen actually with our own eyes. How's that been for you? Well, when I was writing it, of course, I read lots of first-hand accounts. And, I mean, Pepys, everybody knows Samuel Pepys is a great chronicler of that period. And it was the little things that struck me. At one point, he's walking through Whitehall at the height of the plague and is really struck by the fact that grass is growing in these busy streets. There was another bit where he comes home from work to find that one of his servants has been taken ill and has got a headache and has been sent to lie down on Pepys's bed. And this kind of anxiety it makes it all very real. So I was really trying to make, bring history alive and thinking, well, what must that have been like? And of course, that is what we found out, that is, <laughs> that is what it's like. And I think the thing is that people are the same, essentially, all over the world and all through history. Our hopes and our fears are the same. So I'm kind of not surprised that we're responding in very similar ways. I think one huge difference today is that Pepys and Evelyn and a number of chroniclers said how cruel the plague made people to each other. But I think that was because we didn't have a welfare state. We didn't have this sense that there was any safety net, that, that we were all in this together. I mean, I know we're all on the same sea, but we are definitely in different boats. Um, you know, some of us are suffering more than others, but that was true during the plague. You know, the rich could escape. The rich got out of London if they had any sense, but the poor could not get out of London. So the other parallel is that the most vulnerable in society really take the brunt of it today as then. You've written non-fiction books. You've also written two children's books, and this is your first adult novel. How different is the process that you have to go through for a novel? Writing for children is just as difficult as writing for adults. It's not any easier. And you can't have any sex and violence either. So it's not that different from writing for children. I love writing fiction. I love writing non-fiction. And I think it's because with non-fiction, you've got the security of a structure. You know, there are facts that you can't change. So in a sense, you've got that skeleton there that you kind of have to find a path through and fill out. But with fiction, the joy is that you can just make it up. I mean, I know that sounds sort of fatuous, but there's such a pleasure in thinking, well, what's she going to do next? What can she do next? I just enjoy it so much. And I think the skills that you need, or the strategies that you need for writing fiction and non-fiction are not that different. You know, you've still got to engage the reader. You've still got to shape the story. You've still got to make them feel that it's all believable. You're a teacher of creative writing, at Oxford and Cambridge and other colleges. Does teaching creative writing make you ultra-critical of your own work? Are you always applying the principles that you teach others to yourself? 
Yes, I'm always telling students there is nothing in your writing. There's no problem in your writing that you can't fix. It's actually identifying what the problem is that is often the hardest part. But I think I do often think when I hit a problem, I think, well, what would I say to a student who came to me with this problem? And then it perhaps pops up a bit more easily than it would have if I hadn't taught. But I've learned so much about writing from teaching as well. I've got much better at spotting what's wrong, a lot better at being harder on my writing as well, much more willing to cut things. What's the most important piece of advice that you give aspiring writers? We come to writing with a lot of crap that we kind of have to use a different voice. And I I think you mustn't write the book that you want to be admired. You must write the book that you would like to read. And I think that's really important And that keeps it kind of real and keeps it true and also keeps you interested. Of course you want readers, but the best judge of what works is what you like. So I think that's it. Don't think about yourself as a writer. Think about the reader and just make sure you're giving the reader the best time that you can. So you've spent many years now delving into Restoration London. Is there another historical period or character or set of characters that's inspired you enough to consider writing another novel? Well, I didn't think there was, but this idea came to me about an evacuee. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought this would be a really good story. And then I realised that, of course, my dad was an evacuee. And my mum was a girl who lived in the country who remembers the evacuee children coming. And they have two very different narratives about the evacuees, which I thought, well, that's really interesting. And so I think my next story is going to be set in the Second World War, but it'll be very much on the home front. And that is a period that interests me. But then, of course, there might be another. H might have some more adventures as well. We'll have to wait and see. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rob. I've loved it. Historical Fiction 